Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and welcome to the only discussion on Capitol Hill that has absolutely nothing to do with health care. Uh, in fact, today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, U.S. sugar policy, uh, which we, found, we thought was uh, particularly timely given the fact that tomorrow is Halloween. And of course, we, uh, if you didn't pick up a couple uh, early Halloween uh, treats, there are some out on the, uh, the registration table there, just a few uh, small pieces of candy to get us in the, uh, the festive spirit. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, introduce our speakers for today as we get right to the program. Um, very fortunate to have a great panel with us. Our first speaker is, is Dan Griswold. He's the director of the Center of Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He's also the author of a, a brand new book called Mad About Trade. Uh, this is a, uh, a resource I uh, highly recommend you guys uh, pick up. You can uh, get a copy from any Cato staffer, uh, me or, or Kirk Couchman back there. You will do a signing. It's, uh, it's also available uh, fine internet and other uh, book sellers. Uh, but if you are a health staffer, we can give you a, a copy uh, free of charge. Um, Dan, uh, in addition to, to writing excellent books about trade, uh, also uh, studies uh, uh, immigration um, and writes uh, uh, op-eds and, and columns at, at the Cato Institute, which are all available at our website, cato.org. Uh, prior to joining the Cato Institute, he was the editorial page editor at the Colorado Springs Gazette. Uh, he also worked here on Capitol Hill. He was a press secretary for uh, former Congressman Vin Weber. He used to uh, represent uh, Minnesota. Uh, Dan holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin at Madison and a master's degree in the in politics of world economy from the London School of Economics. With that, I'll turn things over to Dan. Thank you very much, Brandon, and thank you, everybody, for coming out today on uh, Halloween Eve. Uh, and Brandon, thanks for mentioning the book. You know, you, you can tell a lot about a book by going to the index. There you can kind of see what's on the... Uh, the author's mind, and if you look at the index of Mad About Trade, there's uh, mentioned there the broad themes of the book, the consumer interest in trade, jobs, manufacturing, foreign investment, protectionism. But if you look for specific people and places and, and programs, there's a few usual suspects that, that pop up uh, time and time again in the book. China, Mexico, Senator Dorgan of North Dakota, and the U.S. Sugar Program. Uh, I call it in the book the poster boy for self-damaging U.S. protectionism. Any time is a good time, I think, to examine this sort of federal program, but it is appropriate. Uh, on Halloween, a lot of candy gets sold. You'll see a lot of uh, comments and studies on the sugar program around Valentine's Day. I'll mention one uh, in a moment. I think we need to ask the basic question. Does this program serve our broader national interest? Who does the program benefit? That's pretty clear. Uh, sugar producers, cane growers, beet growers, they fight very hard to keep the program and to fend off any challenges to it. But I think we also have, have to ask who pays for the program. And Bill Reinch and I have a division of labor uh, today. I'm going to talk about the purely domestic impact of the sugar program. And Bill is going to cast a wider vision on uh, the effects it has on our negotiating posture and our, our place in the, the rest of the world. 
A couple of months ago, the nonpartisan, very technical U.S. International Trade Commission uh, examined a broad range of U.S. import barriers, but in particular the sugar program. They gave several pages to the, to the sugar program. <clears throat> and they pointed out that while overall U.S. trade barriers have been trending downward in recent years, and the average weighted U.S. tariff, to me this is good news, is down to 1.3%, virtually the lowest it's been perhaps uh, in our history. While tariff barriers on sugar remain stubbornly high, it's a quota system, so there isn't a, a simple tariff, but according to the U.S. International Trade Commission, it's the equivalent of about a 48% tariff on imported uh, sugar. The federal government, through its sugar program, guarantees cane and beet growers a set domestic price. They have a program in place uh, that's very similar to other commodity programs. If the price drops below a certain level, about 22 cents a pound, uh, sugar farmers can be compensated through the Commodity Credit Corporation and basically sell their commodities to the government at the guaranteed price. Although it, the domestic price virtually never falls below that guaranteed price because we have a system of tariff rate quotas in place that keep uh, imported sugar out uh, in a way that uh, props up the domestic sugar price above the guaranteed price. Tariff rate quotas basically work in uh, like a normal quota. They assign uh, imports a certain share of the domestic market and then allocate that among sugar producing uh, countries abroad. And sugar that comes in under the tariff rate quota level comes in uh, basically duty free. But anything over uh, the quota comes in at a prohibitively high tariff. So the effect is uh, to basically limit imports to about uh, 1.2 million uh, metric tons uh, per, per year. And this has the effect of guaranteeing domestic sugar producers about 80% of the very large U.S. domestic sweetener market. <clears throat> By any definition, this is a protected domestic cartel conspiring with our own government uh, at the expense of consumers and other sugar-using uh, interests. According to the ITC sugar quotas, restrict and distort the flow of trade to the United States because foreign suppliers cannot compete in the U.S. market at the generally prohibitive over quota duty rates. And quotas steer the restricted trade to other countries based largely on politics and uh, quotas tend to go to high cost producers like the Dominican Republic and do not allow much sugar in from the lower cost producers like Brazil or Thailand. And we wonder why the Brazilians uh, complain so much about U.S. trade policy. Uh, this has been bad news for U.S. households. The sugar program is bad news for U.S. families who must pay higher prices at the grocery store. Uh, and it's equally bad for a segment of American workers, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, because of the sugar program, we pay artificially high domestic prices for refined sugar, Halloween candy, other confectionery products, chocolate and cocoa products, chewing gum, bread, bakery products, cookies and crackers. It's like they called up my mother and asked what all my favorite foods were. That's one reason why I don't like the sugar program. Uh, the ITC report uh, doesn't tell us who pays and who benefits. It's just a net cost to the federal government. 
There's a reason why they do that. The numbers are there in their study. They could tell us, but Congress doesn't want us to know uh, because that would raise criticism of the program. The half a billion cost that the ITC estimates this program costs, half $514 million cost per year, they estimate. That is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, a few years ago, the General Accounting Office did a examination of the sugar program where they went beyond just the net cost to figure out who pays and who doesn't. And they concluded <clears throat> that American households and sugar consuming industries paid an extra $1.9 billion per year because of the sugar program. About a billion dollars of that went to sugar producers. They used that billion dollars to hire their lobbyists uh, and to defend uh, the program. Another $400 million in benefits actually went to the foreign sugar producers who were lucky enough to be able to sell into our market at inflated prices. The other $500 million, poof, it just disappeared in what economists call deadweight losses. And the ITC report confirms that loss. Um, <clears throat> so the sugar program enriches a few thousand sugar producers by ripping off consumers and making our nation as a whole poor. Now, the higher costs cut into profits and the competitiveness of sugar-using industries in the United States. It isn't just a consumer issue. And this is putting thousands of manufacturing jobs. It's either eliminated them or put them in, in jeopardy. In a 2006 report from the Commerce Department, which they released on Valentine's Day in 2006, which I thought was appropriate, uh, they confirmed that the sugar program is not such a sweetheart deal for U.S. industries that use sugar. When U.S. companies are forced to pay two or three times the global price for sugar in the past 25 years, it erodes their competitiveness, their profitability, and their employment. Uh, for makers of confectionery products like the Halloween candy uh, that we buy uh, and others, uh, sugar accounts for 20 to 30 percent of the total cost of production. As a consequence, according to the Commerce Department, many U.S. manufacturers have closed or relocated to Canada, where sugar prices average half of what they do in the United States, and Mexico, where sugar prices average about two-thirds of U.S. prices. Uh, the Commerce Department gets very specific. Uh, uh, Ferrara Pan Candy in Forest Park, Illinois, closed its domestic facilities and eliminated 500 jobs. And they opened a plant in Mexico because of high sugar costs, and two in Canada. Uh, Chicago, which has long been the hub of the domestic confectionery uh, industry, lost 4,000 jobs in that industry from 1991 to 2001. Uh, including a 1,000 jobs at the Brax candy facilities because of higher domestic prices. Uh, elsewhere in the country, Kraft Inc. Uh, eliminated a lifesaver factory in Holland, Michigan in 2002, moved production to Canada because of lower prices. Hershey Foods closed plants in Pennsylvania, Colorado, and California while moving production to Canada. <clears throat> sugar refineries, which take raw sugar and turn it into processed sugar. <clears throat> Years ago, in, we had 23 refineries. Today we have eight, and that's because of high domestic sugar prices. In each of those cases, company representatives cited the high domestic cost of sugar 
as reasons for it's not just low wages or primarily low wages and the wages aren't any lower in Canada it's because of high sugar prices in all 6,400 workers in sugar processing industry have lost their jobs because of our government's own policies to deliberately drive up the cost of a major input of that manufacturing sector and according to the US International Trade Commission if we were to eliminate the sugar program, we'd lose about 2,200 jobs. So basically, in saving the program, we're saving 2,200 jobs, and we've lost over 6,000 jobs, uh, a three-to-one ratio. Now, I've been on many panels with uh, representatives of the sugar growers. They complain that other countries dump sugar on global markets. They claim with a straight face that it's a no-cost program because it does not typically involve taxpayer, direct taxpayer expenditures, but dumping's not the real issue. You know, they insisted that we not allow the Australians any further access. Australia is a very competitive, non-subsidized uh, sugar producer. When we signed a trade agreement with our good friends, the Australians, who've stood shoulder to shoulder with us in Afghanistan and Iraq, but we didn't give them a single uh, pound of extra sugar uh, imports to the United States. Uh, it was the sugar growers that opposed to that. It's not dump sugar, they just don't want the competition. <clears throat> the, uh, and the, the idea that it's no cost, if you look at what both the ITC and the General Accounting Office have told us, it's costing the overall economy half a billion dollars by taking almost two billion dollars from one segment of the public uh, and redistributing it uh, un unjustly. Now, the sugar industry also routinely warns that any extra importation of sugar will be devastating uh, to, to the industry. I think this argument rings as hollow as their other excuses. You know, most U.S. agricultural sectors compete without subsidies or protection. Virtually the whole uh, specialty crop, fruits and, and vegetables, uh, livestock and others, poultry, compete without uh, subsidies. The U.S. sugar industry itself managed to survive quite well from 1975 to 1981 when Congress let the sugar program lapse. They still held on to about half of the domestic market uh, during that time. I guess that wasn't enough. Uh, half of the U.S. market, now they have 80 percent uh, the sugar lobby warned that if we allowed more imported sugar from Central America uh, in the CAFTA agreement or from Mexico in NAFTA, it would be devastating to the industry. Well, we, f we fully implemented uh, those uh, modest openings in the sugar market, and the sugar industry is still exercising a tight grip on the domestic market. Now, I'm, uh, I'm not a big believer in conspiracy theories, but I think the sugar program uh, comes pretty close to turning theory into reality. In The Wealth of Nations, it's one of his more famous quotes, Adam Smith wrote, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public, in some contrivance to raise prices. That describes the sugar program quite well. Uh, Americans instinctively understand that competition is good. For over 100 years, we've had antitrust laws on the books. I've actually uh, looked at some of the wording of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, and I think it's quite relevant to our discussion today. 
That act prohibits every contract, combination, or conspiracy in restraint of trade. And over the decades, U.S. courts have interpreted our antitrust law to forbid such anti-competitive acts as price fixing, division of markets among competitors, uh, and bid rigging. The Supreme Court's even come up with what they call a quick look test to see if some arrangement is violating antitrust laws. And they, de they describe it as when an observer with even a rudimentary understanding of economics could conclude that the arrangements in question have an anti-competitive effect on customers and markets. The U.S. sugar program spectacularly fails the quick look test. It tramples on the spirit, if not the letter, of U.S. antitrust laws. I mean, the overriding purpose of tariff rate quotas on sugar is to fix domestic prices for the benefit of a cabal of producers at the expense of customers and markets. I wish I could say that President Obama was on the side of American families and manufacturing workers on this one, uh, but he has decided to defend the small and special interest of sugar growers. Uh, in August, a coalition of sugar producing industries sent a letter to the Agricultural Department. Global sugar prices have been uh, had historic highs. There's fears of domestic uh, shortages. They asked the USDA to raise the quotas. Uh, they got stiffed. Uh, in the letter dated August 7th, the coalition pleaded, without a quota increase, consumers will pay higher prices, food manufacturing jobs will be at risk, and trading patterns will be distorted. Please act now in the interest of all Americans. The USDA decided to keep quotas uh, right where they are. And this wasn't a surprise during the campaign. President Obama wrote a letter to the sugar uh, producers reminding them that John McCain had voted to eliminate the sugar program, and he would stand, uh, stand by them. And he kept uh, that campaign promise, but so much for change. In conclusion, free trade is not just a matter of sound economics, although it is, certainly that. Free trade is also a matter of justice, fairness, and social equity. In contrast, protectionism, and in particular the sugar program, is a conspiracy against liberty and the public good, and sadly, it's a conspiracy encouraged, enabled, and joined by our own government. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Dan. Uh, next up, we have uh, Bill Reinsch. Uh, Bill is the president of the National Foreign Trade Council, uh, which, uh, if you're not familiar with that, NFTC is the oldest and largest business association dedicated solely to trade policy. Uh, prior to this role, uh, he served in the Clinton administration as Undersecretary for Export Administration at the Department of Commerce. At the Department of Commerce, excuse me. He also spent 20 years working here on Capitol Hill, uh, mostly for Senator John Heinz and uh, also for Senator John Rockefeller. Um, Mr. Reinch holds a BA in International Relations from the Johns Hopkins University and an MA from uh, the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Mr. Reinch. Thank you. Happy to be here to join Dan and to make clear that there's, a, I think, bipartisan concern about this program from a variety of perspectives. Let me ask first, are there, how many of you here are Hill staff? I'm just curious. I see a lot of interested parties. It's nice to know that uh, there's some people here that are actually work on the Hill. This is a good thing. Um, I used to. I envy you. 
It was the, um, some of the best time of my life. What I'm going to do is to uh, be brief because, um, first of all, my mission is more limited than Dan's, and also because he made a lot of the points that I could make as well, and there's no point in making them twice. I'm going to try to approach this issue from the standpoint of international trade negotiations and give you a little perspective of what kind of impact the sugar program has on our negotiations and on our ability to to uh, lead in the Doha round and also bilaterally and plurilaterally. Uh, <clears throat> first, a word about the NFTC, sort of full disclosure. Um, we represent large multinational companies. The, our members are all companies that you've heard of. Uh, they operate in probably 200 co countries worldwide, do a wide variety of different things. and. The mantra of our organization is that we support an open, rules-based trading system. So we tend to support breaking down barriers, um, lowering tariffs, eliminating quotas, doing things that will allow and maximize economic growth and, in the process, maximize uh, the exports and the other activities of our members. So that's the point of view that we're, that we're coming from. I think the main thing to keep in mind about trade is that um, the fundamental lesson, if you're a negotiator, is everything is related to everything else. If you want more here, you're going to get less over there. You know, the people that we deal with in a negotiation, whether it is a global negotiation like the Doha round or whether it's a bilateral FTA or it's like it's NAFTA or CAFTA, we're dealing with people who are professional negotiators, often, frankly, with people who have spent more time doing it professionally than we have because we tend to rotate our people more frequently. Uh, and they're good at what they do, and they know what their national interests are, and uh, they're good bargainers. And that's what a negotiation is. It's bargaining. So the question always is, when you go into a negotiation, what are you trying to protect, what are you trying to preserve, and what are you trying to accomplish? Now, what kinds of trade-offs are you prepared to enter into in order to achieve your objective? Nobody gets 100% of what they want, so you have to set priorities. The problem that sugar causes us is that because the nature of the program is, as Dan described, which is a network of price supports and quotas and tariffs, our negotiators going into, an, into a round of any sort are sort of obligated to defend U.S. law and to defend U.S. programs, of which this is one. In order to defend it, uh, it puts them in a very awkward position because they are simultaneously talking to other countries saying, we want you to remove your quotas, we want you to lower your tariffs, we want you to eliminate your access barriers to our products, including our agricultural products, but we're not going to let your sugar into our country beyond the extent to which you might or might not already have a quota share. That's a hard argument to sustain. It's sort of, you know, give us what we want, but we're not going to give you the very same thing that we're asking of you, that, you're, that we're asking you to do. Uh, it is, not only complicates individual negotiations, it produces uh, situations where we've had to obtain less elsewhere. The class example, two class examples, I think one was Australia where we made the decision going in, in that FTA negotiation, to take sugar off the table uh, over the objections of the Australians, who were looking forward to uh, a share of our market. And the consequence was the, the Australians then declined 
to make some concessions to us in some other areas. So we paid a price, which is what always happens in negotiations in order to protect this program. Uh, likewise, it creates, I guess what could best be called example issues or leadership issue issues. That decision, um, which was the first time the United States in a free trade agreement negotiation had said that we don't want a full FTA that we, where we were willing to say here is a sector that we're simply going to remove from the FTA. That has had a ripple effect going on because what the next thing that happened was the Koreans came in and said, well, uh, we want rice off the table in our negotiation. You guys took sugar off the table there. We're taking rice off the table here. Puts us in a very difficult position. We can't say any longer as a matter of principle we don't do that because we had just done it ourselves a couple years previously. The result is we have a Korean FTA not yet implemented, which is another story that we don't need to get into here. Uh, but um, it is one in which uh, the Koreans have uh, preserved their rice, uh, protected their rice farmers and preserved their rice industry to the detriment of our rice industry in Arkansas and some other states and to the detriment of our rice exporters operating on the basis of the precedent that was established with sugar in the Australian case. This also makes it harder for us to argue on agriculture in the Doha round, whereas those of you that follow this know that agriculture is one of the three pillars of the agreement, and historically you never get to the conclusion of a round unless you can get to an agriculture agreement. Our proposals generally have been to try to, as I said earlier, reduce quotas, reduce subsidies, um, and uh, open access because we are, by and large, uh, for a lot of products, a competitive uh, agricultural producer. And we are a major ag agricultural exporter. We have a lot to gain from an agricultural negotiation that lowers barriers. And if you represent people in the Midwest, in particular in the South, you know a whole range of product areas where there's not only a lot to gain, but where you are no doubt, if your staff meeting with farmers and their representatives from your states and districts who will come in and say, we really need to get this or that in, in the round, uh, particularly from uh, attractive markets like the EU, which is, uh, has, has been very restrictive with respect to a lot of American agricultural exports for a long time for a variety of different reasons. It's a complicated negotiation. There's a lot of issues on the table. The bottom line, though, is that if we go in at the same time we are making all these demands, uh, trying to protect uh, our sugar industry, we go in essentially with one hand tied behind our back. It makes it very difficult for us to insist on concessions, because these are global concessions, uh, that would involve concessions that we would have to make in sugar, because we have not only the, pro the, the program that exists, we also have the, you know, the sugar lobbyists, that, uh, the sugar lobby that doesn't want us to do that. So the result is, I think, or I would argue, fewer agriculture concessions uh, and less benefit for American farmers in other sectors. I don't think they like to talk about that because generally speaking the farmers all stick together and uh, there's a certain logic to that. If you start playing divide and conquer then you have other problems with the negotiation but the reality is in this particular case I think this has cost us and made it more difficult. It also has in a way prevented us from 
looking at the future. The Europeans, uh, the EU sugar program, I shouldn't say Europeans, the EU sugar program uh, is likewise a highly restrictive program. It, as I recall, it works differently, but it's uh, a restrictive program that also produces high prices over there. <clears throat> that program is going to be under pressure, as is ours, uh, in these negotiations from the various uh, uh, developing countries that are sugar producers who would like to have a share of a very attractive market. I think it is probably... <coughs> Um, I don't know, somewhere between likely and inevitable. That and that, which it is, depends a little bit on your judgment about the round generally. And I didn't come here to talk about the Doha round, um, and I wouldn't want to suggest that it's a given that we're, it's going to succeed and that we're going to have this marvelous product. In fact, as time goes on, it appears to be that more and more stuff is being thrown off the table, in which case we may end up with a de minimis product. But I think one of the things that is still going on is a very aggressive negotiation on agriculture and uh, the countries that have restrictive programs in a number of products, particularly sugar, are going to be put under a lot of pressure to uh, agree to changes that will necessitate reforms in their domestic sugar programs. Uh, we will be there, the EU will be there in particular. Um, we will see. Maybe, we won't, we, maybe we'll dodge the bullet, maybe we won't agree to it, but I think that it is only a matter of time um, before we're going to have to face doing that one way or the other. Um, unfortunately, we are not doing any planning for that. As far as I know, we are not doing any planning for that right now. We're not doing any thinking about that, and we are not doing a lot of, there's not a lot of exercises going on talking about how we could uh, restructure or rethink this program in a way that would make it more compatible uh, internationally and would put us in a better negotiating position in, in Doha. That simply, that work isn't going on. Instead, what has been going on in other contexts is almost the reverse. If you look at NAFTA, for example, we had a near crisis, uh, or an averted crisis might be the best word, I guess last year, when after the 15-year phase, the longest phase-out in, in NAFTA uh, finally expired 15 years after its, its origin, and uh, all quota limitations on Mexican sugar were removed. Mexico is now the only country that can import, uh, export sugar to the United States without quota, thanks to NAFTA. What happened as that the expiration of the quota was looming was a significant effort by sugar, the sugar industry of the United States to try to reimpose a quota. And that was debated sort of, uh, not a successful effort, but it was debated and there was a significant effort in the Congress to try to do that. What that prompted, using the, you know, the, my point earlier about everything's related to everything else, was movements in Mexico to restore quotas on corn, rice, beans, and other products that we are exporting to Mexico, where their limitations have also expired as a result of NAFTA. So here again, we are, we're heading into a situation where different product categories and sectors were being played off against each other. The Mexican government was actually concerned about this. They did not welcome you know, internal domestic pressures to reinstate quotas on uh, products that are important in their country that had been phased out as a result of NAFTA. And even though they would have been, uh, well, I guess those, those particular groups would have benefited. But what you saw here was sort of a, 
a march toward restoring agricultural barriers and a march toward protection, which ended up not happening. The Congress did not reimpose the quotas uh, under NAFTA, and the Mexicans did not do it either, so the crisis was averted. But this is what happens as these, thing, these, these things come up, and we face this kind of problem, I think, going forward, other situations as well. The new wrinkle in all this, and I was going to say some things about prices and costs and all that, but Dan has already done that, so I'm not going to, uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to go over the ground that he's plowed already, as it were. Um, but I do want to uh, say a word about ethanol, which uh, has come up in the context of, of not only corn, but also in sugar. Uh, one of the things that happened in the last farm bill that I thought was kind of interesting was <clears throat> that what the sugar industry was able to get into the bill beyond a uh, extension and actually I think in, in some small respects expansion of the domestic program that Dan has described was a new uh, subsidy program for ethanol which is called the Feedstock Flexibility Program, which requires the federal government to buy up surplus sugar and then sell it, uh, in all likelihood, at a loss uh, to ethanol plants for the production of, of ethanol. Um, the loss is not is borne by the taxpayers, not uh, but, and the CBO estimated when the bill was um, being considered that over the next 10 years, the cost of that subsidy program would be just under a billion dollars which is a not insignificant amount of money. Now, this year, for a variety of reasons we can get into later if you want, sugar supplies have been fairly tight. Um, and so there hasn't been a need to exercise this program this year. But going forward, um, we anticipate that will change and the cost of the taxpayers will mount. And what you will have is essentially subsidized ethanol being produced, which is another whole issue that we could we could argue whether that's a wise long-term policy for the United States from uh, several different perspectives. But it's a new, uh, it's a new wrinkle in this that um, suggests that, if anything, the trend of events in the Congress in particular has been toward more protection uh, and more restrictions and a more uh, closed market uh, for sugar rather than the reverse, which means only increased costs, costs for consumers, uh, increased costs for taxpayers uh, directly in the case of ethanol, and increased difficulties in the negotiations that um, are going on. Right now that means particularly Doha and related things. Sooner or later, I think, we will be back to uh, negotiating other kinds of trade agreements in other contexts. Uh, the administration, I suspect, is going to say something about the TPP proposal fairly soon since the president's going to APEC and he can't really go to APEC and not say something about a trade negotiation. So uh, I don't know what he'll say. Uh, I hope he'll say that we're prepared to enter into that negotiation, in which case it will be the first one, the first non-global one that this administration has undertaken. But some of the countries that would be involved in that are sugar-producing countries. Uh, sugar will be back on the table there, and we're going to have to face all these issues again. And our negotiators, are again, are going to be uh, going into that with one hand behind, tied behind their back. So in addition to the things that Dan said, um, which in a way are 
more compelling because they relate to domestic costs, prices, and the way the domestic economy operates. There is also this overlay in the negotiation side that I think you need to take into account as you consider what to do about this program going forward. So thank you.